Well, good morning. How are you? Let's, let's try this again. <laughs> oh, man, this went perfect, just like I planned. Um, so this um, blind side is about Michael Orr, who's a football player, um, becomes a football player, um, ends up a professional football player, and he's invited into the home of Leanne Tooley and her husband, and they take care of him, and they um, basically buy him clothes and provide for him and do amazing things. And the, the cool part of the story is he becomes this um, NFL football player, an offensive tackle, and is a superstar in the league. Just, just an amazing, amazing, based on true story movie. But there is one scene in it that just kind of jumped out to me when I saw it for the first time. Leanne Tooley, who is Sandra Bullock in the movie, goes over to the birth mom of Michael Orr, and she sits down on the couch, and they're having a conversation of how they have invited Michael in, and they're taking care of him, and they're helping um, meet his needs, and he's doing so well. And Michael Orr's birth mom looks at Leanne Tooley, and she says, man, you sure are a fine Christian lady. And Leanne Tooley's response always kind of got to me, because her response was, I try to be. I try to be. I try to be. So the next story, when I was in high school, I had gone to a friend's house, and we were hanging out, and he said, hey, let's go to Target, and we went to Target, and we were walking through the store. I don't know why. We were 15, 16 years old, and he could drive, and so we're walking through Target, and he goes, hey, watch this, and he grabs a couple of packs of baseball cards, and he sticks them in his pocket, and he goes, let's go. And it was one of those moments where, like, deer in the headlights, like, oh, what do I do? And so we walked out of the store. And you talk about a guilt trip. For the next month, two, three months, it was so much just of a guilt-ridden ridden spirit. And I just kept thinking and praying, and God, I, I will make it up to you. God, I'm sorry that I was a part of that. I will do everything I can to make it right. The third story revolves around a friend of mine. They were a couple, and their marriage was kind of on the rocks and led to an affair by the husband. And they went to counseling, and they decided that we're going to make this work. And so they're going to counseling, and they're spending time together. And he comes to me, and he says, I, I don't know what to do. I keep trying my best to make it up to her, to fix things. And it seems like no matter what I do, she can't get over what I did. I'm trying my best and it's not good enough. And I wonder, how much of our lives do we spend trying to be good enough? Maybe for other people. But I think the bigger question, do you ever try to be good enough for God? Do you ever work and work and work to be good enough for Him? Because I think within all of us is there is this sense that we need to do something to earn God's love and admiration and respect and maybe even love. 
Because I think there's something within all of us who understands all of those scenarios, whether it's Leanne Tooley, Tooley, I try. I try really hard. Or myself, God, I'm going to make it up to you. Or even my friend, I'm trying to fix this, and I can't. Because I think within all of us, there's this sense that we know we don't always get it right. We haven't figured it out, in spite of the times that we act like we do. Because for for most of us, we come in here on a Sunday morning, and we sit down in our nice clothes, and our nice, smiling family, who we were probably yelling at on the way to church. I don't, by the way. I am, and honestly, I'm perfect in that. I do not yell at my kids on the way to church in the morning. I I get here before they wake up, so. (laughs) There is a sense where all of us want to be good enough for God. And we want to earn His love. We want to earn His admiration. And I think the Roman church, these Roman Christians, especially the Jewish Christians that he's going to call the weak a little bit later, are sitting in this place with this sense of we are good enough because we have done the big things that matter. We have done the things that matter most. And you have these two groups, the weak and the strong, who sit in opposition for one another. And they're both, both their beliefs in themselves are causing division. Belief in their own goodness. That they've figured it out. That they've got it right. That they know the right things. That they're right with God because of what they have done. And it causes this divide. And Paul begins Romans in chapter 1 with what I would say is a stereotypical Gentile description. As you you start to hear um, towards the end, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Um, And it's, it's stereotypical because in a lot of Jewish literature, there is descriptions very much like this. When you think of the one who's walked away and turned their back on God and who is a liar and sexually immoral and all those things described, that is the stereotypical Gentile. And so as Paul is talking and reading that, that's being read to them, there's this sense for those who are the weak that are sitting there, that's right, that's right, that's right, they don't deserve this. And what Paul does at the end is he comes back and goes, no, here's the problem. Every single one of us fit into that category. Every single one of us are a part of that problem. All of us, as he's going to say in chapter 3, have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us are part of the problem. And the problem is that you are part of the problem, yet you judge people like you're not part of the problem. You sit in judgment saying that you're not. And so in chapter 4, and chapter 3 and chapter 4 fit very closely together. So in chapter 3 he says, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? What is this matter? It is the advantage question is do we have an advantage because we are Jews? So he's talking again to the weak, 
to those who are Jewish Christians, who are Torah observant, who are following the law, who are circumcised, who are following the commands and doing all the things that they think they're supposed to do. That's this matter. And he goes on to say, in fact, if Abraham, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. So if he had done all that he was supposed to do, he does have something to boast about, but not before God. Where can he boast? In what he's done, but not before God. He cannot boast before him. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if we talked about last week, righteousness is this conformity to a standard that is considered to be morally good. Is understood as morally good. Someone who's obeying and who's doing all the right stuff, who looks like they have it all together. That is a person who we would call righteous by the, the book definition. Someone who follows this good, right, moral standard. But the question is bigger than that because the question is so loaded with Jewish history. Okay? He says, and here is really the, the crux of the question, what are we to say then that Abraham, our forefather in the flesh, which means Jews, found favor, which is righteousness, with God by works, that is by the circumcision in Genesis 17, which they, they hoped in, or even offering Isaac in Genesis 22. If that's where he finds his works, then he has something to boast about. So he goes on, and, and this, this guy named Abraham... If you are new to this whole Christianity thing, Abraham is kind of a big player in this. Um, humanity has gone in this tailspin. They have taken God's good creation, as we've said, and they've gone in a direction it was never intended to go. And it ends in this, this place called Babel where the language is confused and the people are scattering, and there is this competition to make a name for themselves, to be more important, to be bigger than everyone else. And so we come to Genesis 12, and what God does, he says, I'm going to start this new group of people. And so in Genesis 12, he says, the Lord had said to Abraham, go to your country, your people, and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. Can you imagine this story? God comes to Abraham at Abram at this point. He says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to give you land I'm going to give you descendants, and ultimately the Messiah is going to come through you. And this people is going to be different than all the other peoples because this people is going to bless everyone else. Where other peoples of the world are focused on themselves and making sure they, their name is known and where they're taken care of, this people is going to be concerned with going out and blessing the world. This people will be different. And so he makes this promise to him. And he says that Abram was 75 years old when he began this journey. Can you imagine? 75 years old 
and leaving the life that you knew and everything behind and starting over just simply because God said to. I can't imagine at 40 starting over and leaving everything I knew, just taking my family and just say, we're just going to go start more. We're going to do whatever because I love the comfort of knowing where I am. I, I love the comfort of knowing my surroundings and how things work. But Abraham goes, and he starts this new life as God tells him, as God's people. And after this, Abraham is concerned. And he says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, and a servant in my household will be my heir. God, you promised me, and I've left, and I've done everything you told me, and here I am, and I don't have any kids. And you promised that I would be a great nation. You promised to give me land, and I'm still wondering. I'm, I'm not only wondering, I'm wondering, God, where where are you? Where are the kids? When are you going to show up and do what you said? Because at 75, I left everything. It goes on to say, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside. And I think that's so interesting. He takes him outside. So Abram, at this point, is probably sitting in a tent. He's inside, and he's, God, I can't see. I, I can't see what you're doing. He says he takes him outside. He takes him outside and says, look. Look up at the sky. You see the stars. If you can count them. If you can count them, that's what your offspring will be like. If you can count the stars in the sky, Abraham, come outside. Come outside and look, trust me. And Abraham does. He goes on to say, if indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, Abram, believed the Lord, and he credited it to him is righteousness. Now, this phrase is fascinating. He believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. What is righteousness? It's upholding to this good moral standard. This happens before the law is given. It happens before the law, and it happens before what the Jews say, well, this is why Abram was righteous, because he was circumcised, or because he offered Isaac. Before he does any of the things that he's supposed to do, other than just going and wondering, God calls him righteous. When Abram was 90 years old, Remember, this journey started at 75 
years old. Abram is 90 years old. When Abram was 99 years old, sorry, excuse me, 99, um, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Now, there, there is an incredible request. Walk before me and be blameless. Anyone want to sign up for that one? Walk before me and be perfect. Walk before me and get it all right. And God has entered into this covenant with him. He enters into this covenant where Abram's part is to be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will greatly increase in numbers. Then God said to Abram, as for you, you must keep my covenant. Like you have to do your part. Blameless, upright, perfect, holy. That's your part of the deal. You and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Now that's a pretty heavy burden to place on someone, isn't it? Make sure you and your kids and your grandkids and your grandkids' grandkids are blameless and walk before me. I mean, because here, you, you can control at some level. But the generations that come after you, how in the world do you make that kind of impact? And so they enter into this covenant. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you, right? This is a sign. This is showing that we belong to the, the people of God, that we're part of Israel. Can, can you imagine, ingrained in their head, is for generations to come, generation after generation after generation, is you're to be circumcised. And everyone's to follow this. And then you come to this place in the church in Rome, and Paul says to them, you don't have to be circumcised. Wait, whoa, 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 that is our sign. And it was for generations to come. Can, can you imagine how difficult this would be for a Jewish Christian to wrap their head around? What, what do you mean you don't, that's how we do things. That's how it's always been done. And now Paul says, wait, there's this new way. But here's the thing. It's not really new. Because they missed the important part of Abram's story. That Abram's faith and his righteousness was not something he earned. It was something he was given. That that righteousness, even going back to Abram, was a gift. Because Abram believed God, right? Right, he believed God. But what did he and Sarah do 
said, you know, we don't see any kids. We're getting older. Sarah says, my womb can't bear a child. Why don't you take our servant? You go and have a child. Then we'll carry God's plan. Isn't it amazing? Like Abram, who believes God, says, well, you know what? We're just going to take matters into our own hands. We don't see God's plan working the way we think it's going to work, so we're just going to go make it work ourselves. We're going to fix God's mistake and the problem. But yet somehow, God says, I'm still going to stick with them. And again, he comes back. Abram was 99 years old. You think that's a big deal that he keeps saying Abram's age? Abraham at this point? Starts out at 75, he's 99. Do you remember how old Abraham is? He's 99 years old when he was circumcised. And his sons, Ishmael, was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Don't you wish you had an invitation to that party? Everyone who Abraham has influence over does what God commands them. It says this, Now, the Lord was gracious, and Sarah said, The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave him the name Isaac, the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham was circumcised. Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old to him when Isaac was born. Wow. Is that not just this amazing story of what God is doing in the life and the world of Abraham? This old man and his wife at this age when no one could possibly think this was possible. Not, not only at her age, but she couldn't have children because it says her womb was dead. And yet somehow, God brings life out of what everyone else assumed was dead. And then, to top everything off, God asks that you would sacrifice Isaac. So the question is, why is Abraham considered righteous by the Jews. Why would the Jews look at Abraham and say he is righteous? Well, it's because of what he's done. I mean, we, we can just count off all the stuff he's done. I mean, he left everything. He went and followed. He believed God that he was going to become this great nation. And, and worst of all, he was going to become this great nation that he would never get to even experience because God says, you know, for 400 years, these people are going to live in slavery. They're, they're going to be oppressed. 
And yet Abraham believes God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Why, in God's eyes, was Abraham justified? Why was he declared righteous? It was by his radical trust and faith. He believed God, and God took care of him. Now, here's why this matters. Because so many of us spend our lives trying to earn God's love and respect, and there is nothing you need to do. Because God loves you unconditionally. What it was that made Abraham righteous was not his obedience, but it was his faith. But because of his faith, he gave everything in his life to being obedient to God, to trusting in him, to believing in him. And so Paul comes to these these Christians who have so much hope and so much faith and so much trust built up in what they've done. And he says in Romans 4, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, not only those who are circumcised, not only those that follow the the Torah, not only those who observe the Sabbath, but also to those who have faith of Abraham. Not, Not faith in Abraham, but the faith of Abraham. Why? Because he is the father of us all. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. See, that's what Abram, Abraham believed. He trusted God and he went where God called him. See, here's, here's the, the, the big deal. If you have faith in God, God will work through you to build his kingdom. That he does not build his kingdom through you because you're good enough, because you've done it right. And so often we think we need to become someone else to get God's love. And here's the thing, you don't. You don't have to change to get God's love. But what I can promise you, If you will love God and have faith in him, you will become someone else. We work and we work and we work and we try to earn our place with God. We work and we work and we work to try to be good enough. And it only happens through our faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to go on to say just a little bit later that it's faith in this God who raised Jesus from the dead. But not just raising Jesus from the dead. He also raised Sarah's womb from the dead. He he raised a son out of a couple who was so far beyond. And there's this really powerful um, kind of juxtaposition in chapters 1 and chapters 4. Because chapter 1 begins with um, the stereotypical Gentile. And then 
chapter 4 is this bookend of this faithful Israelite, Abraham. Haley, can you kind of switch to the, the very end there where the humans... Um, I'm going to skip some slides there. So, humans ignored God as their creator and life giver, right, in Romans 1. And then Abraham believed in God as creator and life giver. Humans knew about God's power, but didn't worship him as God in chapter 1. Abraham recognized God's power and trusted him to use it. Humans did not give God the glory he was due, chapter 1, and Abraham gave God all the glory. Humans dishonored their own bodies through unnatural sexual relations, chapter 1. Abraham, through faith, found that his own body regained its power, even though it was long past the age of fathering a child. Humans dishonored... That was in there twice. (laughs) But here's the thing is Abraham was not the end of the line. The end of the line goes on through Jesus and through you and I because he is the father of us all because we have the faith of Abraham, that we believe like Abraham. Now, here's why this is important. Because some of you came this morning thinking that you've earned your place here because you're not like everyone else. And the problem is not only have we thought that, we also sit in judgment of those who are not where we are. And Paul would say we've missed the mark. Here's why this is important, because some of you have left churches and walked away because you felt like you were an outcast. And just as those who feel like they have it all right are welcomed here, so are you. For some of you, you spend your life churning and endlessly spinning the wheel trying to be good enough for God. And the good news is you too are welcomed here. See, the beauty of the gospel this beautiful announcement that Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection has become king of the whole world is everyone, everyone, regardless of where you've come from, regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been, is invited to come to the table. Because the table is open to everyone. It is an invitation to come and eat and feast because we have the faith of Abraham, because we have the faith and trust that God is going to do what he says he is going to do, he is going to bring life from the dead. And so many people come here today, and you think, my marriage can't take another day like this. And we believe that God has the power to resurrect what is dead. And some of you think your life has just run out of steam. And you don't know why you even come here anymore. And God says, you are welcome at the table. You belong. Some of you have lost hope that the world could possibly 
end up as God says it's going to. Because all you do is look and see the evil and the despair, and everything looks like it's going to collapse. But we have faith that God is redeeming all things. And so we come to this table. It is the table of the Lord. It is a table formed by forgiveness. It is a table whose invitation is open to all who will have faith in Jesus. And it is a table we celebrate, this very uncommon community, where all of our differences, all of our wrongs, we gather knowing that we belong and that we should be here. Welcome to the table of the Lord.